0: You are listening to Reach MD, XM 233 the channel for medical professionals. Communicating bad news is an essential skill for doctors, and it's easier said than done. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Timothy Quill professor of medicine, psychiatry, and medical humanities at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and the chairman of the Ethics Committee of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. Dr. Quill, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Dr. Quill, how do you deliver bad news?
1: Well, we do this all the time uh, in medicine and in palliative care, and there are some strategies that that seem to work. The first is to be aware that you're delivering it and uh, to sort of anticipate what a patient's reaction might be. If it's big bad news, I think everybody knows that this is a big event, uh, but sometimes bad news is it comes in small versions. So for example, sometimes the diagnosis of hypertension is terrible news for somebody who might have had a parent who died of a stroke or something like that. So I think the the steps that generally one takes are to anticipate that you might be talking about this in advance if, if you are, so that the patient is prepared. Uh, if they're not prepared, then you go a little bit slow by greeting the patient, kind of attending to how they're doing in the moment. Then you sort of uh, get them prepared by perhaps giving a little warning shot. I have some uh, more difficult news, some bad news for you. Pause for a second, see how they respond. And then you try to deliver the news in very clear language uh, that uses the words that are key. So if it is cancer, you use cancer, whatever the diagnosis. If it's HIV, use HIV. And then after you deliver the news, you pause, let the, give the patient a chance to respond, and you try to respond to how they respond. For some people, it'll be all emotion, and you kind of just try to empathize with the emotion. For others, it might be questions, and then you sort of have a dialogue around what their response is. I think the biggest mistake we make in delivering bad news is to make it into a monologue. So we, we give bad news, and then in an effort to comfort and get on to what they need to do, we give huge amounts of information, and a lot of times people can't take in anything beyond the bad news.
0: And what if a patient says, I don't want to hear this?
1: In the pre-test counseling, let's say you have somebody who's highly likely to have a cancer diagnosis or some kind of serious illness, and they say, I don't want to hear it then. Then you can ask them, well, how should I communicate it? Who should I talk to about this? Because we're going to have to make some decisions. And you let the patient say, well, I'd like you to talk to my family. And and that might be the way to go for some people, Um you know, then you can say, "Well, why don't you bring them in?" And usually, though, in this in this country in particular, most people want to know their bad news. And if you give them a little bit of time to integrate it, then they'll eventually ask. To, can I? They'll ask to be included in this in this conversation.
0: And how do you determine how much to tell at that initial meeting?
1: There are studies about this, and and in retrospect, people say, "What we really want is." more information, want to know everything about the disease. What actually happens, though, is that people can't take in a lot of information. So I usually try to limit the information to the key things they need to know right then and really think about informing people over time. Uh, Also, if if I know it's going to be a bad news conversation, I will ask them to bring key people from their family with them so that they have more than one set of ears listening. Most of the time, you don't have to move to big decisions right away, so it's a good idea to, to think through decisions, although sometimes you do. You know, if somebody's having a, a heart attack, you have to tell them they have a heart attack, and you have to get them started on key therapy right now. We're going to talk about this more over time, but we have to do these things right now, and then you do what you have to do, and then you pick up the information later on. I think information, true informed consent, though, is going to occur generally over time. Uh, because because if the news is really bad, just the brain is not able to take in a huge amount of information right away.
0: And what if the family says to you, please don't tell, this is going to be the thing that's going to set them over the edge. It will take away hope. Please don't tell. I think
1: uh, you have to explore that with the family. Uh, tell, tell me more about that. Tell me what makes you think that. There are there are cultures where people don't want, uh, you know, where it's the tradition is not to tell the patient, and I think we have to. Be respectful of the cultures and traditions that people are coming from. On the other hand, I have a case right now in the hospital where the, pay, you know, the family is saying, "Please don't tell." And there's a lot of tension in the, in this room because everybody knows, including the patient. But really, the family has almost forbidden us from talking about it. Now, I have, I said, if the patient asks me directly, I will have to tell them. And I've given this pa- this particular patient opportunity to ask, and he said that he said he really hasn't directly asked. Uh, so we still are working through this process, and I think I think we try to work that through. Most of the time, people eventually want to know, and most of the time, uh, getting that elephant out of the room and getting the conversation in the room is is
0: a good thing, but not always. And what's your best advice for assessing how much you're going to tell in that first conversation?
1: Watching the nonverbal and the verbal responses is the way to go. Uh, and so I try to follow the patient's lead uh, to some degree. I also my I have to follow my own lead about what are the absolutely critical things to discuss right now. Do things at the end of this visit have to happen right now, or do we have time to think this through? If we have to get things done right now because it's critic, timing is critical, I will push those parts of the agenda after I've had a chance to respond to however the patient responds. On the other hand, if things don't don't have to be done right now, I'll follow the patient's lead. A lot of patients want to get on with what they have to do, but others will be just reeling from this. So I think you respond to the emotion. You try to have it be a dialogue. You give information in small bits. You let the patient respond to each bit of information. Uh, And then you try to make a plan at the end of this for what are the next steps. Now, the next step might be to have the family in for a more in-depth discussion or it might be to go and have certain tests done or it might be to start treatment the next day. You don't really know what it's going to be. One of my rules is if it's been all emotion – during the interview, I will plant a seed with the patient family. You know, you're going to have a lot of questions about this when you go home. So try to engage their left brain to try to think about this. If it's been all questions, I suggest to them, you know, you may have a lot of feelings about this when you go home, and that's okay. You can We can talk about those next time. So usually... Eventually, they need to deal with both sides of this, the emotional side and the cognitive side, to really make sense out of it over time.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Timothy Quill, discussing how to communicate bad news. Dr. Quill, let's role play so our listeners can see how you would respond to questions from a patient during a bad news discussion. Let's say you've just let me know my diagnosis is pancreatic cancer. Dr. Quill, why didn't you catch this earlier?
1: Well, I certainly wish we could have caught it earlier, um, you know, but on, unfortunately with pancreatic cancer, it's almost never caught early. Uh, because it doesn 't show itself until very late, uh, so even with intensive screening it 's very hard to catch pancreatic cancer early Why me? Uh, a lot of people have that question, and, and it 's certainly a reasonable question and, and i, and I don 't have good answers uh, for that you know it's, uh, What are your thoughts about uh, why you
0: next question: what would you do if you were in my shoes?
1: Let me step out of role for a second let 's say i do let 's say it 's very advanced pancreatic cancer and that there aren 't easy solutions to this. And I'll go back into role and say, well, I you know, I'd have to think that through. Um my senses if it with the degree to which your disease is spread is I'd want to find out a lot of information. I'd want to find out what the options are, but I also wouldn't want to get into treatment that really wouldn't help me. So what I'd suggest we do and what I think I would do is let's get some more information about what the options are and then we'll sit down and really try to think through them and, and see whether any of these treatments have some real hope for you or whether the best thing to do is to take a more conservative approach and and really just work on keeping you comfortable and finding as much uh, meaning as we can during the next phase of things.
0: Thank you. Obviously, these are emotionally charged questions and situations. So how do you advise a busy medical professional? How much time should this take? What kind of environment? Who else should be present?
1: I know everybody's busy (laughs) Now, on the other hand, if you really are delivering things like the last role play, a new diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, I think it is a good idea to uh, both get yourself prepared a little bit and and give a little bit of extra time, although my experience is that it doesn't take a huge amount of time to do this, but it might. So, again, I I, I think uh, if you're having to deliver really bad news, doing it at the end of the day when perhaps you can extend the visit a little bit if you need to, is a good idea. I think having family members come in is a good idea, uh, so that everybody can hear it. Otherwise, you're going to be ha- you're going to be seeing them at a later date anyway, and having lots of phone calls. It takes some time. I think it's much more uh, emotionally challenging than time challenging, though, uh, because I think the amount of information usually at that first visit is not a lot. The amount of emotion is very strong, and the amount of reactivity is very strong. And has
0: any particular patient influenced you in the way you communicate bad news now?
1: I try to not have a a stereotypical view of what's going to happen. I I prepare myself for basically two, two extremes. One is the extreme of people who are just overwhelmed with emotion, and I think that's probably the hardest one because, you know, you're trying to, Comfort them and and they they just need to cry or scream or whatever they need to do, and that's not my ordinary way of dealing with things, and so I have to get prepared for that possibility and then the other possibility is the people who just want lots of information or the or who are at you with a why me or why didn't you catch that earlier if 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 it is an issue that of something I might have caught earlier, I need to think through what what happened and try to be as frank as I can. And if they want to know information about whatever the disease is, I'm, I need to sort of get prepared on that. So if it's a disease I'm not familiar with, I might have to read about it more so I at least know the basics of what needs to be done. I don't have to be a, the world's expert at everything because I think people can see the world's expert if I'm not and talk to them. But I need to have sort of the ballpark down. Uh, before going into that meeting,
0: and how do you stay centered and grounded because you're dealing with these emotionally charged situations every day, all day long?
1: Well, fortunately, I'm not dealing with them every day, all day, all day long. I think if I were, to, were I think it would be more difficult. But if I have a particularly challenging thing, and again, what might be challenging to me might not be challenging to somebody else. But let's say it's a something that might be challenging to most of us—a younger person who we like who has a very a new, very bad diagnosis. I'm a big believer that you, you I talk to my colleagues about it. I try to get my uh my my own lamenting out before I go in there if possible or if not afterwards. So I really try to talk to people about how it went, what I'm worried about how I feel about these things because otherwise I do think they can fester within us and that's not a good thing.
0: Dr. Quill, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I'm
0: Susan Dolan and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.